Hey, what's up? It's Zen here. Thanks for listening to Breaking North. Quick thing before we get to the show, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash breaking north. That's patreon.com slash breaking north. Any amount helps us. And here is the show. Hi. Yeah, so I'm, I'm with Carl Verheyen. There it is. Um, of the the famous band Supertramp, and you're just a general amazing session musician in L.A. And you've, you're from Santa Monica originally, correct? Yeah, I was born there. I grew up in Pasadena. Okay. Had David Lee Roth in a couple of my classes and played across the Van Halen Brothers, you know, in various little clubs and um, Pasadena City College and everything. So I'm from that period and, um, and area. Okay. When did you start uh, teaching? <clears throat> well, I mean, I started playing at 11. Yeah. Yeah. I was probably teaching lessons by about 15, 14 or 15. You know, uh, there was a thing in, in my town called the Youth House. And they said, you want to teach guitar lessons for five bucks and a lesson, half hour. And that was big money for a kid. You know, I think my mom had to drive. I rode my bike there with a guitar. <laughs> and sometimes mom or dad drove me there and I teach for a few hours after school. So it was it was fun. We also my band also played there as. You know, we were children. And it's funny because I just played in uh, at the Triple Door up in Seattle. We had a good 350 people come to see us. And one of the guys in the front row was the bass player from that that grade school band and high school, you know, early high school band. So it was cool to see him. <laughs> I've actually I've actually played there in, in I guess, like the front room. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, is, is there a, I'm trying to think. Is there a like, front? Yeah, yeah, there is a front room upstairs there. Yeah, much much smaller bar, but uh, mm-hmm. one of the actually the only place I've ever played in Seattle. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. So let's 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 go from the start. So you started playing guitar at 11. Who got you into it? I mean, you, you, there's two major influence, maybe three. The first thing, living in Los Angeles, when you came home from school in the seventh grade or sixth grade, and they had these surf shows on the on TV and they were uh, they just half an hour shows on the local station that just showed guys surfing and they played surf music real, you know, constant. And so it must have been the ventures and the safaris and all those kinds of instrumental surf bands. And I was really attracted to that reverby guitar Stratocaster, you know, sound. And then a little bit later down the road, there was um, there was of course the the Beatles and, and George Harrison just blew me away and kind of still does to this day. Some of his solos really jump out of the radio. Like there's one on a song called "I Don't Want to Spoil the Party," and for us Americans, it was on Beatles Six. Check that solo out. It's right out of Chet Atkins, Carl Perkins, you know, uh, that kind of double stop playing. And then of then I really, really got into the birds and Roger McGuinn and the electric 12 string just, you know, jumps out of the radio as well. And so, yeah, I got I got a lot of different influences early on. And then, of course, the whole British invasion. And then when you finally come around to hearing people like Eric Clapton playing in Cream, you realize, wow, there's a whole virtuoso level to this style of rock guitar. And it's much different than the folk guys and the you know accompanying a vocalist type of thing. So that was cool. It was fun to see like people like Hendrix and Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton come along and really elevate it. And uh, you want me to keep going? <laughs> did you, did so 
I want to go back. So how how did you get your first guitar? How, my grandmother gave me a guitar all right. on my eleventh birthday, and my parents gave me a, a lesson later that day, which was okay. great. Okay, and then you were just hooked. I was hooked, yeah. And I took lessons from this guy named John Merrill, who was in a band called the Peanut Butter Conspiracy. And he was just the coolest guy because not only did he have an album out with his picture on it, the Peanut Butter Conspiracy, like L.A. psychedelic band. Um, he also had an upright piano in his bedroom, which I just thought, how cool is how cool is that? So You were just attracted anyway. to the whole musician thing. Yeah, I was, I was really into it for sure, so... Anyway, so trying so, to get uh, the light better here. Oh yeah. Um, so then, I just I just want to kind of go to the progression. So were, did you first start playing in bands, or were you just like kind of just studying for those first uh, formative years? The real early years, just just trying to learn songs, you know. And um, I then I then formed a band with this drummer around the corner, and you know we had a stupid bass player who didn't really care what notes he played until I showed him, and then. Uh, Around, what was around the high called? school. Huh? What was the band called? Do you remember? I don't remember, but the first real band I was in was right after that, and it was called Colossus. <laughs> and uh, we we had business cards printed up, and we played a lot of high school dances and stuff, which was cool. And we were just freshmen, sophomores, so it was great playing these proms and everything. So we, we um, you know, we were doing the, the, the hip tunes of the day, like, like Cream and Creedence Clearwater and, uh, um, you know, the kinks and all that kind of stuff. It was pretty neat. And, you know, I had no idea about tone or anything. Then I joined a band called Mad Shadow right after high school. And in that band was a wonderful guitar player named Jeff Taylor, who actually passed away on Thanksgiving about four years ago. But he was the first guy to come along and say, hey, man, you should get some real frets on this guitar. These things are so worn out, you know, get, get a fret job. And I go, they can do that. No idea. And he goes, man, you should cut your nails. How can you possibly bend notes with fingernails that long? And I go, really? So he was the guy that kind of jumped my whole groove up a, a couple of notches, which was really neat. A At this point, were you still using the same guitar? Probably. Well, I didn't even own a, an electric guitar. I was borrowing one from around the corner until that guy's dad finally said, get your own electric guitar. Yeah, you're using this my too face. much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was borrowing it every weekend for a couple of nights, you know. And uh, um, But then I got a job when I was um, – my parents went out to dinner in this restaurant in Pasadena called The Sawmill. And as we're walking out, we pass by the bar, and there's a guy singing and playing acoustic guitar. And uh, I said, hey, I could probably do that. So I went up to a waitress and said, who do I talk to to get the, to get, get a gig here? And, you know, I'm only 17, but she said, come by tomorrow. The manager's here. So I came by, played for him. He goes, you're hired for Mondays and Tuesdays. You are 18, aren't you? And I said, no. And he goes, ah, sorry, you can't work in a bar until you're 18. Come back when you turn 18, which was going to be like three months down the road. So I did come back on my 18th birthday, and he hired me. So I started playing two nights a week, which moved into five nights a week. And I was doing songs like Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown and Van Morrison and just singing and playing acoustic. And uh, uh, the the next thing that kind of, the next like life-changing thing that happened was this guy came in and let me see, I could probably show you real easily. 
Uh, this guitar isn't plugged in, but you could probably see. This guy came in and said, he said, um, kid, I like the way you play. If you ever want to get together and jam sometime, I'd be into it. And he was much older. He was probably, I'm 18, so he's probably in his 40s or something. So I go over to his house and he pulls out some music and puts it in front of me. And the first chord was an F major seventh, which, which I knew. Right. So I played that. The second chord I'd never seen before. It was a D minor seven flat five. So I said, well, here's D minor seven. One, two, three, four, five. Is that it? And he goes, yeah, but you should voice it like that. Of course, this is a richer voicing. Sometimes it's nice to use the open string. You can put the flat five on top. That's really cool. You can put the flat five on the bottom. A lot of people like the seventh on top or the seventh on the bottom. Of course, this is probably my favorite voicing right here. Of course, you can play this voicing with the root on top or maybe uh, the flat five on top like that. Uh, you can do like uh, smaller voicings like this that don't have a root at all, or maybe catch the root with your thumb. Uh, this is a nice voicing. Of course, this is also an F minor six. So every place I have F minor six, my brain just went, because <clears throat> here's a chord I'd never seen before. And he's showing me like 20 voicings for it, you know? And so I, I thought it was good already you know how you have that sort of youthful uh what uh ego or whatever i thought i was a hot shot here i'm just looking over this wall at a thousand you know thousand things i don't know this huge this huge plateau of stuff i i had no idea so in the 70s i really started down this long dark highway of jazz where i practiced and practiced and practiced. I tried learning tunes. I learned my scales. I learned how to improvise over chords. I learned, um, I probably learned about 250 songs. I took lessons and I spent the whole, the whole decade, not decade, but, you know, maybe five years with these blinders on listening to West Montgomery and Pat Metheny and Grant Green and Pat Martino and all these jazz guys. And I played, you know, wide body guitars instead of uh, instead of thin guitars. I played instead of solid body guitars. I played hollow bodies and I got all these jazz gigs and I went to Berkeley College of Music for a while and uh, just one semester. But I studied real hard and uh, that was good because I learned well, all well, that. What made you kind of um, to drop out of it? What made me leave that? You mean? Yeah, we'll call it, it leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I when I, I I was driving in my car down here in L.A. and I I know exactly where it happened, the corner of Laurel Canyon and Riverside Drive, and I'm just driving, come punching through the radio stations, right as you do. And I came across this Joe Walsh guitar solo in a tune called "Those Shoes" by the Eagles, and it was mind blowing because I had to pull over. And if you ever check out those shoes, he does this awesome solo in E minor, which is just so guttural and so heartfelt. And I think it, he's using the talk box and, you know, the way it ends is just so insane. And I literally pulled over and went, man, the state of rock guitar has really advanced since I left off in the early 70s with, you know, Aerosmith were coming around. I was thinking, yeah, that Aerosmith's great. Good feel, good groove. Love the guitar player, but it's kind of Rolling Stones-ish. I've heard that. I need a challenge. And so I got, you know, into learning jazz standards and difficult heads and difficult chord changes. But when I heard this Joe Walsh solo in one key, basically E minor, you know, I just went, man, I need to learn everything I dig, not just jazz. 
So at that moment, my life really changed and I got into country music. I got into bluegrass. I got into heavy metal. I got in, back into blues. I got into, uh, you know, back into folk music and finger picking Chet Atkins and Lenny Bro and <clears throat> um, fusion guitar, rock guitar, you know, just everything. And, and, and it really suited my my move. I was living down in Orange County and it suited this move that I did up to the L.A. area. Because I was the king of the scene down there. I had all the jazz gigs I wanted. I had all the studio gigs and stuff. But <clears throat> L.A. was the big pond, and I was the really little fish. But learning all that stuff, listening to Albert King and studying how he phrases, and then the next week listening to Albert Lee, the country player, learning how he phrases, all that stuff really made my... Um, well, I look at music business as sort of this pie. And I, I should say the studio business and even the guitarist for hire business and definitely the drummer for hire business. If you can play rockabilly guitar, you get a wedge of the pie that big, you know. Or if you're a country guy and you got the hat and the, the little deals on your shirt and you only play a Telecaster with a big belt buckle, you know, you're really get to get that wedge and that's it. And it really came home to me one time years later, a few years later, after really immersing myself and my practice would be play, work on something until I'm bored with it. Work on country guitar licks until, okay, I'm, I'm sick of that stuff. I'm going to work on blues guitar and study some Mike Bloomfield stuff, you know, or uh, some, uh, I don't know, BB King, whatever. Just, just in other words, just keep yourself interested and keep yourself moving forward. So, one day I showed up, I got this call from a producer saying, with this country record we're doing, I just need you to be a, bring a little Fender amp and a Telecaster. And in, in the L.A. studio scene, it's much different than New York or e, e, some of the other places. We have what's called cartage, which means you keep your gear in a warehouse and you call the cartage company to deliver it. And that includes two trunks of guitars, sometimes three I have a trunk of electrics that holds uh, 12 electric guitars and a trunk of acoustics that holds 10. And then a trunk of stuff like mandolins, banjos, dobros, those, you know, oddball stuff, ukuleles. So <clears throat> he said, just bring a telly. And I said, you know what? What if it goes a different direction? Maybe you should pay for cartridge. He goes, OK, go ahead. <clears throat> so I show up and there is a guy there with a telly and a little Fender amp. Telecaster for all you non-guitarists, that's the country guitar, right? Oh yeah, the, the number one country. One of the few so I, I know. <laughs> I mean, I said it's one of the few I know as a drummer. Yeah, yeah, you know Telly. So anyway, I showed up, and there's a guy there with a cowboy hat and the cowboy boots and the shirt with the deals on it. And uh, the the way it went down was we started this tune, and it was a little kind of countryish tune. And um, when we finished a take of it, the guy said, you know, I, the producer said, I think it should lean a little bit more in the rock direction. So I put the telly down, got a strat with a little bit of distortion and kept ro and started to rock it a little more. And this guy kept his sound. Then he goes, God, this is great. I think it should get more rocking than that. So I put that away, got a Les Paul guitar, which is now getting into some serious power chord territory. We taped it again. We, we did it again. Once a guy, again, this guy plays the telly and the same sound and everything. And by the end, it turned into be a pretty hard hitting thing. And then we changed that and did an acoustic version. 
And this guy only had a Telecaster, so I pulled out an acoustic. Anyway, long story short, the next day, because it was a two-day set of sessions, that guy wasn't invited back because he just could do one thing. He got that wedge of the pie. So by just getting into all kinds of music and being a fan of music and being a, uh, <clears throat> you, you become what I like to call the well-listened craftsman. Because I've been called to, you know, sound exactly like ZZ Top. And, you know, we need you to sound like ZZ Top. Show up at the session. I go, okay, I know. Billy Gibbons is the guitar player. He plays a Les Paul back pickup through sort of a, a little Fender Champ amp, the 50s style. He gets those pinch harmonics. He has the Texas shuffle, which feels much different than the Chicago shuffle. Got it. So by being a fan of ZZ Top and of Billy Gibbons, I can come in and nail it. And there's a certain amount of fun creativity to that too, you know, that I really enjoy. Um, but you're basically like a plumber in many ways because a plumber is going to come in and look under your sink and go, well, I'm going to go out to the trunk. I'm going to get a wrench. I'm going to get a street elbow. I'm going to get a three, three quarter inch cap. I'm going to, you know, you know what I mean? I go to my trunks, open them up, pull out a, a guitar that's going to suit that job. So there's, like I said, there's a certain amount of creativity and sort of self-satisfaction but, you know, eventually, with all that studio work, I needed to, um, I really needed to start doing my own music and, and uh, start, you know, my, my childhood dream was to have a band and go out on tour and play. And that's eventually where I ended up, you know. Eventually. You mentioned like the blinders in the 70s. Were, did you think you were ever, was that the aspiration? Like, what did your family think about you becoming a musician? Did you want to be a professional musician? Was this something that you just kept on working on and just kept happening to you? How did it work? Yeah, I, I really never had another job in my life except for when I bought a Les Paul as a 16-year-old and needed to make payments on it. And my mom and dad said, you should get a summer job and pay it off right now. So I became a box boy at the local market. And then, you know, didn't ever really stop the practicing. And, uh, and uh, there was never really a plan B for me. I just I just uh, went for it the whole time. And I've, like I said, I've always made my living as a guitar player, except that one little summer, which is really lucky. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And but, you know, my dad, my dad said, if you work hard, you will succeed. And I took that to the music world and said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work really hard at this and get get to be the very best I can, you know, so. And you just loved it. And yeah, that was, all the that was time. always the point. And I'm still extremely expired. I mean, <laughs> inspired. <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah, I'm really inspired. I hear I hear something on the radio or something on one of my albums, or uh, somebody plays me something. I go, I got to know that. You know, what, what have you heard on the radio lately that uh, maybe has uh, piqued your interest? Well, what what sometimes happens to me is if I'm driving around and some song comes on that I've I'll get to that in a second. OK, but some song comes on that I've always loved, but I don't know what it is. Um, I will uh, I'll learn it. I'll come home and say, what is that? What, why do I love it? And what is the harmony doing? You know, what's going on there? You know, um, is this your guitar of the month, by the way? Uh, this one isn't. But uh I don't know. If, I don't know which one it's going to be this time. Yeah, I guess it's a little early in the month. Yeah, it's early in the month. That usually comes later. So I would. I remember driving along and hearing um, "Goodbye Yellow Brick Road" by Elton John. Right. 
Mm. I came home and I'm listening and I'm going, okay, I get it. That's, I don't have perfect pitch, but. while I'm driving and for the musicians out there it's the two chord to the five chord to the one chord to the four chord to the flat seven to the five to the one but as I'm driving along I hear him go uh, let's see um, couldn't hear I go where did he go what was that chord change turns out it's the four minor to the five to the one in a flat right so you know you begin to see that a lot of the great songwriters like uh, like Paul Simon and Brian Wilson and uh, Lennon and McCartney you know especially McCartney their sense of harmony was really really strong and they really knew what they were doing so I, I that's something that is inspiring to me is just harmony and to ask yourself, you know, you, especially you hear an old tune on the radio that you kind of grew up with, like good vibrations, you know, I'm kind of going, what is that? You know, so in other words, that that's an inspiring thing is just to hear hear stuff and try to analyze it and go a what is it and b what what turns me on about it why do i like it but when you say what's currently inspiring to me um the other night i went backstage at derek truck's susan tedeschi concert and met and met derek for the first time i've never met him but i told him man i've been transcribing your slide licks for electric guitar without the slide you know some of the licks he'll do, like if we're in F, he'll go, you know, it's what da, 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 with the slide. And I just try to get those little phrases down. There's so much, he has so much expression in his playing, you know, that, that uh, he's currently a real source of inspiration, especially if I can translate it to the fingers, because you, I can play slide guitar and I've done it on lots of records and TV shows and movie soundtracks. But you hear him and you go, man, I will never touch that. I'll never, I'll never get to that level because it's what he does. It's his thing, you know, so anyway. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, I want to get into uh, now like your session work and kind of like how you did it. So, I, I mean, I have to ask, how did you get into Supertramp? You started playing with oh, them in 19th. Yeah, I was doing a bunch of sessions around town and I got this one call one day from a female vocalist. And I don't think I've ever seen her again. And this is in 1985. And it was a studio I'd never even been to. And so we're working on her tracks. And uh, the engineer was a British guy. And he he and I kind of really vibed. I was getting good sounds with him. And he was digging what I was doing. And so we exchanged numbers. And I went home that day, just another session, right? Just another kind of a record date type session. 
And I went home that day and the, I got a call that night from a guy named Norman Hall. But it was he was so British sounding, it sounded like Norman Hall. <laughs> and he said, Super Tramps auditioning guitar players. We've heard 18 so far. Your name came up. Apparently, he had talked to that engineer. And that guy said, you know, what's going on? We're auditioning guitar. Oh, I heard today. They called me, and I went down the following morning. I was literally auditioning at 10 in the morning the next morning. So there was no YouTube, and there was no time to learn any of their trap tunes. And I didn't have any Super Tramp records. Uh, so I went down the next morning and I apologized. I said, sorry, guys, I just don't know any of your songs. And Rick Davies, who was the leader of the band, he goes, we don't want to play any of our bloody songs. Let's play the blues. So that's what we did. We played the blues and they had me sing a few. And uh, we just we just had a ball. You know, it was really a fun thing. And when I was walking into audition Buzzy Featon was walking out, and he's one of my favorites. I mean, he's an L.A. guitar player that he played in the Butterfield Blues Band for a while and the Larson Featon Band and a band called Full Moon. And I was I was at the time really a fan of his and transcribing a lot of his licks and stuff. So um, so anyway, long story short, uh, they called me that night and said, you got the you got the gig. Literally, like overnight, it changed my whole life because. And we started to tour. We, first, we rehearsed for a month. And that was really, we actually rehearsed for six weeks. It was hysterical because I'm a studio guy, right? I can read music and pick up stuff fast. I was only 29 at the time, I believe, but I still had that stuff going on. So we went to Rick's house for a meeting in his studio. And we kind of divided up the parts. You're going to sing this. You're going to play that. You have a guitar solo here. And uh, so I went home and the next couple of weeks, I just learned the whole thing. I knew the show memorized down, you know, and um, yeah, six weeks is a long time. Like that's, that's a great amount of rehearsal time for a show. Fair. Yeah. So, so what happened is then we get to A&M records and they hadn't been touring. They hadn't toured for a couple of years. So I remember telling the bass player at the time, Doogie Thompson, the original bass player, I said, I think it's an F sharp. You're playing an F there. I think that's supposed to be an F sharp. And he goes, oh, yeah, you're right. I think I kind of knew it better. And these guys, so we did two weeks of that. Then we moved to Zoetrope Studios, this huge soundstage where we did four more weeks of rehearsal, six days a week on the soundstage with the lights and stuff. So this is very old school. You know, uh, once they found out, how badass some of us were. <laughs> they never had to do that again. But uh, anyway, I was kind of bored because I just had it down. And uh, they would completely stop the rehearsal if the chip in a little drum somebody's supposed to hit is finger snaps when it should be hand claps. You know, they'd stop the rehearsal. Everybody take a break. We're going to send a guy, send the drum roadie to Guitar Center and pick that up. It was hysterical. So I'm going, guys, why don't we use the time efficiently and work on background vocals. No, we got to get this right. It was pretty funny. So all that rehearsal, the whole show, then, oh, then we go to St. John's, Newfoundland and rehearse another three or four days in a hockey stadium before we're going to play there for a few nights. And they, they had a gigantic set that had a huge curtain. I mean, we're talking thousands of yards of material. 
And the curtain opens, and I'm supposed to start the whole show with this B, the big B, you know, power chord. And the curtain opens, one, two, three, four, nothing. And it's because I'd never seen 20,000 people in front of me. I'd been playing these little little jazz gigs and club gigs with 18 to 30 people in the in the audience. So 20,000 people screaming, you know, uh, it was a trip. So... Once I got past that initial that initial shock, then he recounted it and I hit it and, and we're off. And I never I never looked back. I was I got this, you know, so it was a, it was a big, big shock to a, a 29 year old. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> jazz musician, he just got to play a B. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All I need is a B natural. Yeah. With, with some hair on it, some power, power chords kind of things. So yeah, that must have been a big shock. Did you ever get like kind of freaked out? How were you kind of coping with that? Was it just like, okay, I just, now I just got this. What what was it for you? I mean, that was the only moment that I ever kind of freaked out about giant audiences. And we played to, you know, 170,000 a couple times, these giant festivals. There was one in France and one in Switzerland that did people as far as you could see to the next village, you know. So, but I never I never got freaked out after that. Another interesting thing on that very first concert was you know, these British guys had this tradition that the first night of the first show, between the show and then coming back for the encore, they would decant a bottle of port wine through the cheesecloth thing into a decanter, and then everybody have a glass of port and toast. Now, I'm the kind of guy who's been playing at this local club in Santa Monica called At My Place. We got off stage, we walked to the stage door while they're applauding, and we turn right around. We don't even go backstage because if they stop clapping, we won't get the encore and we won't get to play our last song. So we call them cheap encores. We just turn around on our heels. Oh, they want us back? Okay, great. These guys, okay, you got to remember, it's a hockey stadium and the seats are metal and the, uh, the bleachers in there are metal. And it's, it's like 20,000 people because, as you know, hockey in Canada yeah. You know, it's a, it's a deal. So these guys, the, the, the audience is going, you know, with their feet. They're just pounding and screaming and clapping. And meanwhile, backstage, it's like they're pouring this wine, this port wine. I'm kind of going, guys, um, hello. They want us back. They want us back. They go, we understand. No worries. And so, you know, they're poor. They're, then we all toast. And like a good eight to 10 minutes go by and they're still screaming because they'll wait. You know, I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't know that until the lights go up, you know, nobody's going anywhere. You know, there's a chance the band might come back, obviously. Uh, anyway, so we went back and played the encore, you know, eventually. But uh, that was like I was so nervous, you know, <laughs> being the being the baby of the family, being the young guy. Beating, you're like, uh, yeah, yeah. Should, should, uh, shouldn't we be back up there? I mean, what, what, they might leave. They're not going anywhere anyway. So where do you think uh, the kind of the best shows are most well received for or maybe not best, but most fun shows for Super Champ were like what country, what sort of area was there a place that you guys just loved? Uh, I remember I remember playing in Liverpool was insane. Um, places like Montreal. uh Try to think where it's like they're just out of control. Um, Seattle was pretty great. I remember one time, uh, you know, just, just uh, uh, but but the Italians, we, we we played in the arena in Verona, which is an old Roman 
thing. It's like a Coliseum, a little bit smaller. And I had taken a tour of that arena because my band plays in Italy a lot. We already did this year for, for two and a half weeks. And uh, anyway, I remember uh, taking a tour of the arena, paying the guide, you know, with a, with a bunch of people to go view it. And then the following year, I'm playing in there. And that was amazing to see the moon rise between those Roman arches, you know, and think, man, this has been a venue. This has been a gig for 2000 years, you know, so that's kind of cool. History. So, yeah. So you always loved your time there. It was just smooth sailing for the most part. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been great. Eventually, uh, in later years, Supertramp started doing the private jet thing, which means we would hub out of a city. If you're playing the East Coast, you hub out of New York. If you're playing or Chicago or something. If you're playing France, you hub out of Paris. And it's a little weird because when my band tours, once the gig is over, we're meeting the punters, you know, we're meeting the the fans and sh- doing selfies and signing autographs on CDs and books and what do you videos. And exactly. Pardon me? What do you mean by hub exactly? What that means is, is so so my band, my band is going to the city and playing like we played in Seattle, stayed in Seattle. Uh, we played in Friday Harbor on a, a festival on San Juan Island, stayed there. So after the show, you, you, you get a little after show hang. You get to meet the people. With Supertramp, once we got into the last three years of it, um, the last three tours, it was a private jet, which means we stay in, we stay in Paris. And we go from we at four in the afternoon, we take a short limo drive to Bourget Airport, which is a little corporate airport. We get on a private jet and we just bam, fly, you know, 45 minutes or an hour to Marseille. We pull we land at a small airport there. Another set of limos takes us backstage, play the show. Well, first do a sound check, then have a big dinner. And by the way, we just had a big lunch on the plane. Not that you need a big dinner, too. And then after the show, we literally, I hand my guitar, my last guitar to my tech, walk off the stage as my limo, me and the bass player, pulls up. And we head straight to the airport, sometimes with a police escort because uh, because um, there might be a, a, an ordinance. You can't fly after 11 o'clock. And we are literally at the airport before the people get to their cars. And we're back in Paris, you know, or Munich or uh, Milan or London, these cities we're hubbing out of. We're back in those places having a beer in the, you know, having an $18 beer in the lobby. <laughs> I mean, in the in the bar of the of the super expensive hotel. So anyway, it's a little different. I, I That's called a runner. And a lot of bands do a runner, you know. I went to do. I went to see Steely Dan in um, um, Santa Barbara, and I'm friends with the musical director, guitar player John Harrington. I said, "Hey, man, can I get backstage passes because Walter Becker plays my guitar, the LSL CV Special, and I would love to thank him because it's his main guitar. I'd love to say." And he goes, "Ah, oh, Donald and Donald and Walter always do a runner. They won't be there, but you're welcome." Anyway, he did do a runner, but Donald Fagan was there, so I got to meet him. But so, uh, and I turned into Chris Farley. I totally went blubber on him. I said the same things. He said the same thing to me that I say to fans that come up to me, because I said, "You guys played Bodhisattva tonight. That was cool, you know." And he goes, "Yeah, we like to mix it up." 
And that's that's what I say to people when they go, man, you guys play Chinatown tonight. I didn't know you were going to do Yeah, we like to mix it up. So, yeah, anyway. be a little, not to brush it, off. But yeah, just yeah. here I am. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so I want to talk about some other um, people you've played with. Uh, I'm, I think I'm most curious to kind of hear and if you actually met her or if you just like did the session with somebody else. But uh, with Dolly Parton, how was <clears throat> with her? Yeah, we were doing her movie called. It was either nine to five or straight talk. I don't remember which movie, but I had to meet her at a studio and uh, record acoustic guitar and her. I think it was a um, a pre-record for how they were going to pace the movie scene. I don't know how it worked, but she was going to sing this tune. I think that's what it was. I can't remember, but I do remember going to the studio and sitting in a chair uh, with my acoustic and she's standing about four feet in front of me. And she said, uh, what are you looking at? You know, and I said, oh, sorry, Dolly. You know, and she goes, you know why Dolly's waist is so skinny? And I go, no. And she goes, because nothing grows in the shade, you know, because she's got those giant breasts. <laughs> anyway, it was funny. She's about five feet tall and, you know, this monster set of breasts. And uh, I go, oh, sorry, Dolly. She had about five Dolly Parton jokes, too. I don't remember any more than that one. And uh, how was the session? How was it? Great, great. She couldn't have been sweeter and nicer. And uh, I'm not sure they actually used the track. I think it was just a pacing thing. You know, there's sometimes you do that and it's sort of a uh, a pre-record and then you go back and record it later with the band. So mm-hmm. kind of like a demo, but a yeah, a little demo thing for her vocal to get paced out, right. How she wanted to do it. So yeah. that was a cool thing. And then I played on all the rest of the tracks on those movies, but I, she wasn't there for those, you know, they just did the tracks. Only that one time did I actually, I'm on the, I'm on those records, but yeah. And when I played for the Bee Gees, um, they were doing a record called Still Waters, and um, it was sad. I never got to meet him, and I'm a huge fan. I love the Bee Gees, and it was it was you know too bad they weren't there. It was they were in Florida. We did this at, at in L.A. at Sunset Sound. So and that, that's kind of interesting to me. That why what did they pull you in for? What does a band like that kind of pull in extra musician for? It's the producer who says if they have like a touring band, say. He might say, your touring band's cool. We'll use them on a tune or two to make them, you know, keep them involved. But really, there's a better guy on guitar for this track. And I'm going to call this guy. And Or there's a better bass player and drummer. So that's the producer's call. If they're trusting him to make the best tracks they can, that he can, you know, he's going to call his guys that he's used to. Mm-hmm. So, and it's funny because I only worked one session with that guy. That guy was named Raphael Sadig, I think his name was, and that producer. And we had done a record for, uh, I can't remember her name. I think it was the singer from En Vogue. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was, uh, uh, I know I probably have the record on my ego rack. <laughs> <laughs> so I could probably look it up. So Is that and, all stuff you've recorded on or is that just? No, like- just, just a couple of rows of it. Gotcha. Yeah, so, so, but there's um, there's obviously a lot more here. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I got a lo- I got a bunch of vinyl too. It's kind of how I learned to play. You know, listen to that vinyl and listen to those CDs. It's um, it's uh, you know, just dropping the needle and trying it again and again until you get it. Or, 
recording it onto a cassette and backing it up and playing it. You know, that's a real big part of learning back in the day. Before there was tab or YouTube videos or anything, you know, we had to kind of do it by ear. You had to actually learn it. Yeah, exactly. So just as we're talking about your your studio, your office room, you have a lot of recording gear around there. Is it well I got I've got um I got a little home studio, but all most of my all my records have been made in real studios, yeah. you know. I want to go I want to go to Sunset Sound, Capitol Records, I want to go to Village Recorders, these what I call temples of tone where I know that the room sounds great. And as far as a guitar goes, you know, they put a microphone on a guitar amp and that's just one part of the sound that you really hear. So I really like it when my engineer, I mean, I make sure that if it's an important guitar part, like say a solo, I make sure that the engineer walks around the room and just listens to where that sound is blooming, you know, where it's really opening up and sounding great. And one engineer, I mean, he'll get out a ladder and climb up here and see if it's better high or by the ceiling or down here or in the corner. And then he puts the mic there and then he sort of has to figure out how to time align it so that there's not a phase issue. Because as you know, with Pro Tools, there's waveforms, right? If this wave goes up, but the wave that's, but the sound that's hitting the distant mic goes up later, it's going to be out of phase. So yeah. he's got to then time align it. But he does that until I just start to light up and really, really get into it. And then we, um, then we're good to go. So, um, yeah, so I, I've been doing it that now. I also record here, I can mic amplifiers and I have this, uh, this digital thing called a Kemper, which has profiles of about 40 of my amps. <laughs> and so I can say, you know, I think I'll use the Fender Showman on this track with the 57 microphone or with the, you know, UA 67 or something. So mm-hmm. anyway, so. Yeah. You have, it's, uh, you have a lot of hardware back there as well. It's uh looks pretty yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I got, I got, I got, let me show you this. Yeah. If it sounds good, I don't sell it. So yeah, I don't know if the light will be squirrely, but you see there's a, there's a couple of rows of pedals down under that window there nice. and that that's in that's only the ones that are in here out out in a trunk in the garage there's a bunch more and i have five pedal boards yeah, your, your garage is stacked <laughs> yeah my garage is really full of gear yeah so some of it's on its way from seattle down to um santa cruz where we're playing on yeah on the sunday so yeah, 11th yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, speaking of which, you uh, you mentioned to my my buddy who I work on the podcast with that uh, you played in Mo's, or at Moe's Alley in 1999. Yeah, I did. It was really funny. I'll, I'll tell you the. He, he told me to repeat this story. Yeah. He's uh, at the time my record company was hiring this guy who was I don't I don't want to say his name, but he was really a bottom dweller music industry guy, right? I know. He lived above the DMV in Hollywood. And so when you went to his office, you go, well, where do you where do you go to the bathroom? And he goes, oh, down the hall. Where do you take a shower uh, at my gym? You know, and he we had a meeting in the morning. And, of course, the couch has got pillows and blankets on it. And he's behind his desk, you know, totally not showered yet. You know, so it was, he was definitely a, a, a low life dude. Uh, good guy, though. But 
he was extremely effective at tour promotion, you know. So when I went anywhere, he really got it going. He really got the, you know, it wasn't just bait and tackle weekly that you had your picture on. It was so we played Santa Cruz and I made I made the cover of the uh whatever entertainment paper you know and i was also in the regular newspaper so the 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 free entertainment paper had me on it and the i was pick of the week in the other paper and uh and it was like a tuesday it was a weird night of the week and i showed up and the guy that ran the place said who are you man We're, we're packed we're totally sold out it's amazing and i said wow great and uh he said, I'm, I'm worried. I can't get another cocktail waitress. He was freaking out, you know. I said, hey, that's a good problem to have, you know. So anyway, we played. And when I went back there many years later, this would be the second time I played there, which was a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago. Um, he said, if you ever really want it was it was okay. It wasn't sold out. I didn't have that kind of publicity that time. I don't think those papers existed anymore, probably, but... Uh, um, I'd long lost touch with the bottom dweller guy too, but he said, if you ever really want to have a good crowd, play the Sunday blues brunch thing. Mm. So I don't know why they call it a blues brunch because it starts at three 30 in the afternoon. I would think you'd have had brunch by then. Well, rock and roll brunch, I guess, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, so, um, so that's what we're doing this Sunday. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Uh, when do you, when do you get into Santa Cruz? Are you, are you going to be there right at Sunday? Uh, what we do is we play someplace in Carmel, a new venue called the Wine Bank, um, and it's Carmel, and they've got an outdoor stage. And uh, I'm actually having my tour manager bring the PA because we don't trust their PA system. You know, they were saying, "Yeah, we got some speakers. You know, we got a microphone. Oh, that will not do. No, an international touring rock band. You know, rock, blues, jazz, jam band." And uh, we we have to if we're coming that far we're going to sound good you know so you know what's funny is uh, yesterday I got a text message about I think exactly that needing a sound guy for that or somebody who has all the PA's and speakers so in Carmel oh. Valley oh yeah oh wow well uh, they need to know that we don't we don't need that <laughs> no which is yeah. that's very funny I got a text from my yeah. out of nowhere. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hey, text him back and say it's covered. All right. I, I, I sure hope that somebody doesn't show up with with a bunch of gear because we're really we're trucking it up. And and my uh, tour manager has a PA company, so when he's not on tour with me, he's doing other PA other PA gigs. So oh, perfect. Well, there so. you go. Um, so I like to ask uh, every artist, you know, chef, musician, everybody who comes on the show, the same question. What is your idea of success, either for yourself or kind of your general philosophy on it? That's a great question. And um, I would have to say that on the level of the music side, there's the music side of it and the life side. On the life side, my idea for, of success is, is doing exactly what I want to do with my life and, and a job that makes me real satisfied and real happy and righteously fulfilled, you know, and not 
making my family suffer. And my family is just a wife and a son. Now he's, he's graduated from college. He's pretty much launched. Right. So, but the entire, this entire time of, you know, of, of having a, a child and raising a kid and being married to a woman, uh, you know, I, I never put them through the starving artist thing. That's my idea of success. I always made a good living. So that there's that on the music side, uh, my ideas of success is not necessarily being the best guitar player. I can, well, it is, it's being the best musician I can be, but more importantly, being the best Carl Verheyen I can be because you know, like I said earlier, I can never play the slide guitar as well as, um, as well as uh, Sonny Landreth or Derek Trucks or Dwayne Allman. You know, I'll never be that good. On the other, on the other hand, they'll never be as good as me doing what I do. You know, so so uh, you just have to be the best of you that you can be. That's my idea of success: is constantly striving for that. And um, I'm I'm a practicer. I mean, I, I'm a guy that finds my center as a person when I have that time by myself to dig into stuff. You know, whether it's the next gig, because I I have a motto: I will not suck. And so if the, the, I look at the set list and I just make sure I really own all that stuff. And there's something I debrief too. Like after a show, the next day I'll go, man, there's that one line in that song passing through and I screwed it up again. I've got to work on that. I'm going to play it for five minutes straight until it's just under my hands. You know what I mean? So I will not suck. So there's that kind of practicing, but there's also the exploration of new ideas and new, new music. And so for, for, I think since about 1978, I've been keeping a lick book. And the lick book is, um, well, it, here's a typical page. It looks like this. It's every new musical, every musical idea that I come up with that sounds like me, I write it down in notes and I put the position above it and the fingers below it. And that's much hipper than tab because I can notate things that tab cannot, you know, I can notate various bends and position changes and everything. So anyway, I'm uh, I'm constantly exploring lines. You're familiar with Chick Corea, right? Oh, yeah. So years and years ago, I think it was in the 70s even, I was reading a magazine called Contemporary Keyboard. And in that magazine, he said, the best of us only are only truly improvising 30% of the time. The other 70% were stringing together ideas and lines we've already worked out and stringing them together. And then we might improvise here or there. And, but, but really, we're kind of bridging those, those, those lines we have. So that changed my life immediately. I just went, wow, you listen to something like Spain or Captain Marvel or one of his tunes and you go, that guy can go forever on A minor seventh chord right he never repeats himself so i said i need to work some stuff out for a minor all over the guitar i need lines i need long lines short lines things that connect position changing things you know um so i need to cover the whole guitar neck the entire range of the instrument with lines in a minor and then spice them up with jazz licks or blues licks or country licks things that things that sort of uh 
define the ornamentation of the style. You know, like if I'm playing country music, I know there's the bluegrass side of it with the open strings, or there's the pedal steel slide of it with a lot of bends, you know? Um, so I want to kind of incorporate those into my own lines so that it's people hear me and go, yeah, he's playing country. He's playing. Okay. So you are playing uh, September 11th at Moe's Alley. That is this weekend. Yeah. It's this Sunday at three 30 in the afternoon. So, and the cool thing about Moe's Alley, man, it sounds good in there. That's my favorite uh, sounding venue in town. Wow. But- great. Yeah, and they and they really treat the musicians well. Brian is a really incredible owner. So yeah, he's the new guy, right? He's the new owner. Yeah, he bought it during quarantine with the the bartender that worked there forever. Oh, yeah. cool, great. Yeah, yeah, they have a good sound system, and I remember their 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 tech guy that runs it is cool. And um, uh, I'm bringing my big rig, which is four guitar amps and two four by twelve cabinets. And uh, oh, that'll be. Uh, cool. And Dave Murata, my bass player of many, many years, he's doing, you know, he's from Monterey. So we always get some Monterey people coming up to see us there. And, uh, and um, yeah, I hope, I hope it gets enough publicity to, uh, to fill it up. They, they, in the past, when Mo owned it, mm-hmm. uh, he, he, he said that that's the day, that's the time and day to play Sunday yeah. afternoon. So. Yeah. I think anyway. it should be good. You know, I think I think people definitely want that. And if they're doing the food with that, which I assume they would be, the food mm-hmm. is excellent. The taco Great. is incredible. Um, let's kind of open up the uh, whatever else is going on for you. Any projects you want to talk about? You had an album called Sundial come out in 2021, correct? So this is mm-hmm. more for that. Um, are you recording right now? Uh, is there anything well, else? So, yeah, that's a good question. So what, what I've done, I've pretty much written the next album, the Sundial Tour, which was last year. Uh, my bass player couldn't do it for health reasons. And John Mater, my drummer, was doing Hamilton in L.A. And uh, Hamilton, the play, he was getting paid like twelve hundred and fifty bucks a day. So I couldn't touch that. I go, like, you don't have. So I got Chad Wackerman uh, on drums, who's a dear old friend of mine and Alfonso Johnson, bass player from Weather Report and Santana, and just kind of put together this little super group. And we went out and did what what I call the Sundial Tour. So this tour is really fun because one thing that Supertramp always said, you know, Rick Davies said, we said it's, he goes, it's too bad we need to do an album and then a tour because the album becomes the demo for the tour. You play this, you work out the stuff, you record it, then you go out on the road and it just gets better and better. And even arrangements can change. And man, we should have recorded it that way. So what I'm doing right now is I'm taking about five tunes that will be recorded uh, later, you know, maybe maybe December or January. And I'm just, just playing them every night. And um, they're accessible tunes. So the people aren't really scratching their head, you know. And we play the tunes that they came to hear as well. You know, there's a handful of tunes that are, and some of the sundial material. And the the, the other thing I'm doing, Zen, is I've kind of gotten inspired by the whole Bob Weir concept or the Grateful Dead concept, which is you have the band can the band knows 50 tunes. And since the band knows that many tunes, the set list doesn't have to be the same every night. We might start with the first two or three, but then the fourth tune can be slotted in a different one. And then the fifth tune can, you know. I try to make sure tempos are different. 
feels are different. You don't want to do two tunes at the same tempo, two tunes with the same groove, two shuffles in a row or anything like that. And I try to make sure that the keys are different. We don't want to finish a tune in the key of A and then start another tune in A. You know, just give people musical variety. And uh, and so I'm trying to, um, I'm, we're, we're going to then, we're then going to go on tour in Europe for five weeks starting the 1st of October. And that'll be fun because those those tours we have we have fans that follow us around or they'll catch a gig and then there'll be another gig three hours away. They'll come and see that. And so it's really fun to just change the set list. And then they start talking on Instagram and stuff. Hey, they played Place for Me tonight. Really? They didn't play out when I was there. I'm going to go see them in Belgium and see if they play it there. You know, so you get that kind of excitement going. And I, I, I read a great article with Bob Weir where he's got a computer program that lists all the up-tempo tunes, all the, all the, um, let's see, all the ballads or slow tunes, all the, this kind of feel, that kind of feel, and then relists them all according to key, starting key and ending key, if there's a modulation. Hmm. So he could go, okay, third tune, it needs to be a slow tune. Let's see. And it can't be in the key of C. So let's go over here. <laughs> okay. Key of D slow, boom. And he can find that, you know, and then slot that in. So the set list can really be different. That's a that's a that's a challenging but intriguing concept for me. Yeah. Uh, that, that sounds fun. That's a, that sounds like a neat program. Yeah. 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 Whatever that is, I got to figure it out. So <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, Carl Bahayim, thank you so much for being on the show. This was super fun to talk to you, and uh, best of luck with the tour. Great. Um, this has been Breaking North. We interview artists, creators, musicians, just talk about what they do, how they do it, where they came from, and uh, we're always uh, doing doing more. So, yeah, anything, any last thoughts you want to let people know? Well, I'd love to see them up. In, if, if anybody's in the Santa Cruz area, I'd love to see you guys there. It'd be really oh, yeah. fun to uh, have the Mo's Alley gig sell out. And uh, otherwise, we'll catch you down the road. Go to carlverhyen.com where you can get uh, all 16 of my uh, – previous releases i've got books i've got dvds um and uh hopefully i'll see you guys out there hey what's up zen here again thanks for listening to the show just wanted to let you know again that we have a patreon patreon.com slash breaking north that is patreon.com slash breaking north please also like subscribe review do all the good stuff for our social media communicate with us and if you want to be on the show hit me up i want to check out your art i want to check out your cooking i want to check out what you do let's talk Cool. Thanks. Mwah.